Hello and welcome to the Poetry Exchange. I'm Michael Schaefer. And I'm Fiona Bennett. How are you, Faye? Lovely to see you. Fantastic to see you, Michael. I'm, I'm, I'm very well. Things are a little bit chaotic today, so let's just hope that they're not chaotic right now. That would, that would be unhelpful for all our listeners if I was to be chaotic. I think I need the steadying space of a poem to go into, so I think when we've completed this, I will just sink into the poem that we're about to share and stay there for a while, see if that can settle me down. If a poem can't do it for you, nothing can. That's true enough. Absolutely, absolutely. How are you? I'm very well. I was just, in fact, we were just saying before uh, before we press record that the last time we saw each other uh, was at the Royal Opera House for quite an extraordinary evening, watching Ballet Black perform Will Tuckett's piece Then or Now, and I had the dubious pleasure of hearing. <laughs> myself read some poems that you had brilliantly uh, curated alongside two other readers Hafsa Anila Bashir and Natasha Gordon old friends of ours and the projects and it was it was quite a thing wasn't it it really was I was kind of a bit blown away by it actually Mm. I was a bit I was a bit lost for words on the night Uh, and you actually have seen this piece performed now several times for you How, how was that to watch it over the round of three nights. Phenomenal thing. It had five nights in all. I saw three of the five. And I just can't believe how incredible these dancers of Ballet Black are. And the thing that I love about their work is that they have all the discipline and unison of collective movement that you, you kind of get with ballet. But they also have this incredible individuality each dancer is so yeah just so individually expressive Mm. and the technical skill is off the scale so it's just mind-blowing and the whole collaboration which really Casa Pancho uh, artistic director of Ballet Black and William Tuckett choreographer kind of put together with you know us being involved and then um Daniel Piero playing the violin exquisitely. It's just, um, you just feel it's one of those moments in your life where, you know, something really special happened and, you know, forces came together. So it was, yeah, it was great. I couldn't agree more. It it really did feel like a privilege to be a little part of that, actually, and to sort of have a little peek into that world as well. You know, it's quite different to to my world, to the theatre thing, and... um, they're extraordinary. It's just amazing. Casa Pancho is uh, she's quite a force, isn't she? What what a, what a thrill it was to to work with her. I'm not just saying all of this about Ballet Black to make our listeners jealous. Fee, the reason I mention it is they have made a film of uh, Then or Now, and I'm, I believe I'm right in saying it's available from November the 22nd through the Barbican's website. And I think you pay and then you get access to it for 48 hours. So we'll include a link to that on the on the, the notes for the episode and you can go and watch that film. I believe something else will happen with it afterwards, Fee, but we're not quite sure what yet. So we'll make sure to, to let everyone know once we know. So it's really exciting to be bringing this episode to our listeners, isn't it, Michael? And it features things which we'll come to in a moment 
but it also features me and Roy McFarlane in the conversation. So unusually, I didn't have you uh, alongside me or John, who's sometimes with me. I think on the last episode, it was me and John. And this time it was myself and the wonderful poet Roy McFarlane talking to our guest about the poem that's been a friend to them. And it was a real, um, just a joyful, nourishing and enriching time. And um, yeah, Roy got quite comfortable in your chair. I just, that's all I have to say, Michael. So, you know. <laughs> yeah, well, if uh, for anyone that doesn't know Roy, of course, we first met him, or I certainly I first met him through a Poetry Exchange episode. He brought a Langston Hughes poem, The Negro Speaks of Rivers. And it's a really wonderful episode. If you've not heard that, I encourage you to go and have a listen in the archives. Uh, and for anyone that did come to our event, an evening in the company of poems, uh, Roy absolutely wowed everybody with his readings there. So, yeah, we're, we're really lucky that he uh, he lent us his time. And, um, of course, he got comfy in my chair. He's like that, isn't he, Roy? <laughs> and we were blessed uh, on those days at the Birmingham Midland Institute with um, all the people that came. And it was especially wonderful to have this guest come along, no less than Professor of Poetry at Birmingham City University, poet extraordinaire, delightful man, great teacher, great poet, Gregory Ledbetter. And yeah, it was just amazing. I think he had quite a lot on at the time, but he managed to find the moment to to come and find us and to share the poem that's been a friend to him. So you'll be hearing Fiona and Roy talk about Kubla Khan by Samuel Coleridge, the poem that's been a friend to Gregory. I think we're ready yeah. to, to yeah. meet, meet the poem. So, Gregory, would you just, just read it through for us just so we can hear it in the room? I will. In Xanadu did Kubla Khan a stately pleasure dome decree where Alf, the sacred river, ran through caverns measureless to man, down to a sunless sea. So twice five miles of fertile ground, with walls and towers, were girdled round. And there were gardens bright with sinuous rills, where blossomed many an incense-bearing tree. And here were forests ancient as the hills, enfolding sunny spots of greenery. But oh, that deep romantic chasm, which slanted down the green hill, athwart a sedan cover. A savage place, as holy and enchanted as air beneath a waning moon, was haunted by woman wailing for her demon lover. And from this chasm, with ceaseless turmoil seething, as if this earth in fast, thick pants were breathing, a mighty fountain momently was forced, amid whose swift half-intermitted burst huge fragments vaulted like rebounding hail, or chaffy grain beneath the thresher's flail. And mid these dancing rocks at once and ever, it flung up momently the sacred river. Five miles meandering with a mazy motion, through wood and dale the sacred river ran, 
then reached the caverns measureless to man and sank in tumult to a lifeless ocean. And mid this tumult, Kubla heard from far ancestral voices prophesying war. The shadow of the dome of pleasure floated midway on the waves, where was heard the mingled measure from the fountain and the caves. It was a miracle of rare device, a sunny pleasure dome with caves of ice. A damsel with a dulcimer in a vision once I saw. It was an Abyssinian maid, and on her dulcimer she played, singing of Mount Abora. Could I revive within me her symphony and song? To such a deep delight t'would win me that with music loud and long I would build that dome in air, that sunny dome, those caves of ice, and all who heard should see them there, and all should cry, beware, beware, his flashing eyes, his floating hair. Weave a circle round him thrice, and close your eyes with holy dread, for he on honeydew hath fed, and drunk the milk of paradise. Wow, thank you so much. Thank wow. you. So, has this poem been with you a long time? Yes, I met this poem when I was 17, and that was when uh, it just hit me, and I just, it just lit me up, you know? It was a sort of synaptic flood across my brain, and I couldn't explain it, really, what, what was so arresting and enlivening and animating about the poem for a long time. Actually, I remember the moment Coleridge's face sort of slapped down on my desk there, you know, staring back up at me because the teacher went around tossing out this old James Reeves edition of, of Coleridge's poems. And, and it, I remember the moment it just hit the desk and there he was looking back up at me. And I remember my notes sort of went mad and I was sort of drawing and... It's there on the page, really, in my notes on the poem, my kind of reaction to it. Mm. And in a, in a way, I, I think I can trace the fact of my being a poet to this poem, because it was just so exciting. And the more I thought about it, the more it yielded of its mystery, but it also held on to its mystery. And, you know, it still does. Obviously intensely musical. Mm. Mm. You know, you've got this actually really amazingly regular kind of metrical pattern, mm. but that's combined with this extraordinary imagery. So it has this kind of ecstatic mm. quality, which mm. hit me straight away. And also, I think it woke me up to the way in which, I mean, it's, it's not a really short poem by modern standards, but there's a myth here, you know, the whole thing, it, it has a wholeness, I think, uh, and integrity as a kind of myth. So it taught me that the lyric can be mythic and mm. the mythic can be lyric. And I think that's one of the things that fed into my own work mm. uh, as a poet, you know, and well, I could just go on. I could just yeah. ramble on. That's good. But <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And you talk about the myth and, and the magic of it. How does that relate to you, the, the man, or even to the 17-year-old A-level student. Yeah, well, I think the power of names, 
really comes across. I mean, right there in the opening line, in Xanadu did Kubla Khan. Now, of course, at the time, I didn't know anything about Xanadu, <laughs> or indeed the fact that Coleridge is here kind of lifting out some phrases from Purchase's pilgrimage. It's a, a sort of 17th century travel book, essentially. And he's working with that, and that's his starting point. He says he fell asleep over over this book um, after taking an anodyne. <laughs> it's opium, kids. <laughs> um, uh, and, um, uh, and then, you know, all these images rose up for, for him. So just the story, it has its own creation myth, I suppose, around it, which, of course, Coleridge wrote too. So when this was published in 1816, really at Byron's suggestion, it had been composed for at least 17 years by that time. Uh. Coleridge had been taking this around as this sort of private myth, you know, and he would recite it. He probably knew it off by heart. So people were hearing it. And he'd recited it to Byron in 1815, and Byron was sort of, well, I think we'd say blown away by it. <laughs> um, and said, so, you, know, you should publish it. But when it was published, Coleridge put this introductory account, which, which essentially was a creation myth about the poem. And then, so that's the sort of frame around it. And then within that, you've got this myth. So it's like a double like this layered myth, a creation myth within a creation myth. Okay. And I think it appealed to me in particular because it was about origination. And I think I've always been, I've always, I don't know why, again, it's sort of, you know, why do you like strawberries or something in a way? It's, mm. I, it's just something that's always, I, I remember in a very early, one of the first ever poetry workshops I went to, somebody said, you're always writing about beginnings. Things are always beginning in your poems, aren't they? Mm. And I thought, actually, gosh, you're right, you know. Um, mm. And so there's something about origination here. It's a kind of source of life and source of language. There's a sort of alphabetical mystery in here, which I just absolutely love. So you've got Alf, who's kind of punning on alphabet, perhaps, and... And also the idea um, from Kabbalistic tradition that the Aleph, the first letter of the Hebrew alphabet, contains all the other letters. And all the other letters are kind of emanations of this primal letter. So it's kind of the origin of language. But of course, the way we pronounce Xanadu as well, it's Z. So you've got A to Z <laughs> looping through this, this poem. <laughs> Um, and it is a kind of loop. There's, you've got the source and where it falls. So that all of these things just kind of appealed to uh, my sense of possibility in language, I suppose. Language is a form of making of genuinely uh, poetic power, something that creates. Because um, I think that's sort of built into this, you know, I would build that dome in air if I could revive mm. within me. That, so it's about, it's about creation, it's about origination, it's about language, it's about life, and this intimate connection between physical life, organic life, and language. So it kind of performs this sort of marriage, I think, in this poem of, of those, those energies. Mm. And I think that's just sort of fundamental to, to my work to this day. And it's so inspiring to understand the poem through that lens of the possibilities of language. Yeah, and I think it's sort of, language is a kind of form of touch, and, mm. 
and itself a source of life. I think that's what I felt with this, you know, mm. that awakening energy when I, when I read it. Um, it, it altered me. Mm -hmm. uh, and I think in, in, in good ways, you know, language is part of nature, but it's also a changer of nature. Mm. It's, it's an alterer of nature. And I, I think this kind of embodies that, yeah, that wonderfully. Mm. Yeah, and it's kind of going back to the thing of creation, it's unfixable and unfixed. That yes. sort of feels very live, doesn't yeah. it? Um, it doesn't want to set it down. Yeah. You know, which is why the way you've spoken about it is so exciting and why I understand that as a 18 year old, you would feel that possibility of something live speaking to you yeah. and speaking to your kind of heart. In yeah, a way. absolutely. And there's this sort of it's sort of built into the language of the poem. Could I revive within me? So it's both possible and actual at one and the same time. It's actual because we've sort of got this figure floating there, flashing eyes, floating hair. You've got this figure doing this, this stuff and the poem is embodying that. But there's also this conditionality that's sort of saying, yeah, this is an ongoing, this is also deferred. It's both, both actual and deferred. And I think that's fascinating because as you say, it, it refuses to be um, petrified into a dogma or mm. something like that mm. is something absolutely alive and mm. ongoing it's kind of an ongoing process of creation just like the source mm. it flung up momently uh, the sacred river uh, and the amid the dancing rocks at once and ever mm. so mm. you've got the moment and it's a kind of perpetual moment a perpetual genesis the vanishing point of the river becomes kind of one with its source through this poem as well. Right. I have not, I, I mean, I was having a whole topographical moment when we got to the chasm. <laughs> I was kind of going, hang on a minute, we've got, the, yeah. we've got the source, we've got it flowing, we've got the greenery, the gardens, now we're in the chasm, what's happening? So yeah. you're sort of saying like there's a kind of, the kind of disappearing is also the re-emerging, that I it's kind so. of re, which is how nature yeah. works. I mean, it's interesting for us in the time of, climate emergency uh, isn't it uh, absolutely and i think you know you know on that ecological point mm. there's a contribution to the english language the word greenery we didn't have that word before okay. that um. is a contribution that this poem makes you know that coleridge is is credited with oh, wow. giving to the english language so yeah greenery um which is just such a wonderful word because it it also contains that idea of greener of a getting greener and greener. It's dynamic as a word, greenery, which I really, which I really love. Uh, so yeah, there is this sort of whole topography to it. And um, it's almost like a sort of world egg with the sort of dome at the top. And you've got the, the flowing from the source. And of course, if, if it's flowing down from a source that implies a kind of high ground, and then you've got Mount Aberor in the second part. So in a way that that second, with the damsel, with her dulcimer, that's kind of mapped onto the topography of the first part in a sense. They kind of speak to each other. You've got the woman wailing for her demon lover in the first sort of landscape. And then you've got the damsel with the dulcimer singing. Again, things are being reconnected and flowing into each other, into the, rather like that symbol of infinity, you know, that, yeah. flows in, in and around. And I was wondering if that line, woman wailing for a demon lover, sets us up for 
his flashing eyes, oh, floating yeah. air, yeah. weave a circle. Yeah? I think so. Absolutely right. I think in a way, the demon lover is embodied in that, in that final section. Yeah. So, like I said, it's just one of these things that just keeps on giving. The more mm. you look, and yet it with, withholds something, because no, all these things are fascinating, but you can't comprise the poem in all of these explanations. It's not like you can reduce it or explain it away, because it's got its, its own aural uh, and imaginative power. Yes, it really, it really is amazing just sitting and listening to it with you reading it was fantastic and you kind of you, you hear it inside yourself I mean it's one of those poems that will just come into you when you're somewhere and oh yeah you just hear a phrase of it or a fragment of it because it's and it's not that you're thinking oh that idea about yeah <laughs> you know it's just in your it's in your moment of encounter with the world and yourself in the world isn't it I suppose it is there's a great phrase and Wordsworth talks about the way poetry can get into the blood and vital juices of our minds <laughs> juicy mind isn't that good and I think that's what that you know that's what's happening is it as exactly as you've just said you know it gets into the very fabric of your thinking yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and again that's one of those wonderful things that that interaction between the organic and the the psychological or intellectual um, our experiences become partly conditioned through the poetry we read of course and maybe switch on a kind of senses that we might not otherwise have have had in terms of our interactions with the world I think that's something poetry can mm. can do yeah I'm really struck by that that idea of it its capacity to open sensibility mm. and mm. senses mm. both the physical and the the human of that mm. um, that's beautiful we've talked about the poem but the man yeah you have you have a real love for the man i do yeah yeah yeah, yeah so yeah, he's he's this flawed figure you know uh, he's so human because he's so damaged and and yet so wonderful and extraordinary and i you know he, he someone who who suffered a great deal but who genuine and he was intensely you know he had crashing moments of self-pity in the depths of addiction you know it got himself in all sorts of terrible scrapes but you know there's he's there's this intense sort of sense of life about his own sensibility that intense level of attention that he brought to the natural world um, to his own psychological life to language mm. giving us certain words psychosomatic is another word that he gave the language and so I've always found him just this fascinating presence. And his friends were kind of both fascinated and infuriated by, <laughs> by him as well, you know, because they saw, they saw how self-destructive he, he could be. Mm. He, he was effectively outcast from his family. He wasn't a good parent, unfortunately, even though he certainly did transmit some good things on to, to his children. But of course, you know, he was struggling with opium addiction mm. for his adult life and actually that that wasn't well understood mm. um, his friend or sort of friend <laughs> Robert Southey who became poet laureate in 1813 he said oh you know Wordsworth and Dorothy William and Dorothy they just they indulge 
uh, Coleridge instead of shutting him up in a room and telling him to sort himself out, basically. <laughs> and that was the kind of attitude. So he's a syllabus in himself when you study him because there's just, he, he thought about absolutely everything. But also just on a human level, such drama you know, in, in the life and, and such pathos. I mean, actually, Southey, there's another letter where he said, it pains me that people in the future will not know that uh, what a genius is here wasted. Mm. Um, they really thought he'd, he'd die having done nothing, basically. <laughs> um, so there's this, this sort of real pathos to his life. And, you know, you do just want to reach out across time and space and say, actually, you know what? You needn't have worried about that, that and that. <laughs> um, I feel also that the, you know, the inspiration of the man and the work that you're describing is this, this willingness to look at everything. Not even just willingness, but the actual need, you know, the kind of organic human to universe need to just look at everything yeah. and say, what's this? What's this? Where is this meeting? And and that unflinching capacity to just, mm. yeah, look it all in the face, however, whatever it is, yeah. however big, raw it is. Yeah. Um, and that's a, that's a great inspiration. So you're going to ask him that famous question that the exchange always asks? Oh, shall we? <laughs> yeah. cool. Shall I? You go for it. Okay. Oh, okay. okay. So we've asked you to bring the poem that's been a friend to you. And if I could ask you this question, what kind of a friend oh, yes. is this? Deeply mysterious one. <laughs> mm. Mm. Yeah, um, yeah, a friend who is also still a stranger in some way, but who I feel very close to and intimate with and, funnily enough, have a kind of unspoken relationship to something that can't be said, some kind of understanding that just exists between myself and this friend. So a friend at once intimate and distance and uh, extremely charismatic, I suppose, but um, uh, at the same time generous and not at all egotistical. Mm. I think there's something here that is profoundly giving, actually, about, about what, what this poem does. I, I, I feel it's a generous it is a gift. So a stranger who is also intimate, who gives um, unselfconsciously, uh, and maybe uh, that strange glint in their eye, <laughs> the flashing eyes, mm. that gives them away. Mm, brilliant. My God, that's so well, good. Yeah. I want that friend. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's so oh, great. Beautiful. Samuel Taylor Coleridge, Kubla Khan. In Xanadu did Kubla Khan a stately pleasure dome decree, where Alf, the sacred river, ran through caverns measureless to man, down to a sunless sea. So twice five miles of fertile ground with walls and towers were girdled round. And there were gardens bright with sinuous rills, where blossomed many an incense-bearing tree. And here were forests ancient as the hills, 
enfolding sunny spots of greenery. But oh, that deep romantic chasm which slanted down the green hill athwart a cedarn cover, a savage place as holy and enchanted as ere beneath a waning moon was haunted by woman wailing for a demon lover. And from this chasm, with ceaseless turmoil seething, as if this earth in fast thick pants were breathing, a mighty fountain momentarily was forced, amid whose swift half-intermitted burst, huge fragments vaulted like rebounding hail, or chaffy grain beneath the freshest flail. And mid these dancing rocks, at once and ever, it flung up momently the sacred river. Five miles meandering with a mazy motion, through wood and dale the sacred river ran, then reached the caverns measureless to man, and sank in tumult to a lifeless ocean. And mid this tumult, Kubler heard from far ancestral voices prophesying war. The shadow of the dome of pleasure floated midway on the waves, where was heard the mingled measure from the fountain and the caves. It was a miracle of rare device, a sunny pleasure dome with caves of ice. A damsel with a dulcimer, in vision once I saw, it was an Abyssinian maid, and on a dulcimer she played, singing of Mount Abora. Could I revive within me her symphony and song? To such a deep delight, twould win me, that with music loud and long, I would build that dome in air, that sunny dome, those caves of ice, and all who heard should see them there, and all should cry, Beware! Beware! His flashing eyes, his floating hair, weave a circle round him thrice, and close your eyes with holy dread, for he on honeydew hath fed and drunk the milk of paradise. That was Roy with the gift reading of Kubla Khan at the end there. Our thanks, of course, to Gregory for giving us his time and for giving us permission to use that conversation. Fee, I was quite struck by something Gregory says there. He talked about a synaptic flood. That was the response he had when he first uh, came across this poem. It, uh, I wondered if you'd ever had that in response to a poem. A synaptic flood. Isn't that excellent? Oh, my goodness. Yeah, I think definitely Coleridge, you know, the Romantic Poets in different tones and different ways and with different landscapes. I mean, obviously there are multiple landscapes in that poem that Gregory spoke about so beautifully, but sometimes perhaps the more real landscapes that Wordsworth walked through, you know, you can similarly have that, the kind of flood of image and spirit and being that kind of happens when you're walking actually as well, I guess. And, uh, 
So yes, many, many ways of having that experience of synaptic flood. I think probably there's a poet I've just discovered who was part of the beat generation in the States. And, you know, that's a sort of a more modern phase of poetry, which was about that, you know, the great outpouring, the kind of poet as cry of the soul or cry of the spirit or cry of the politic, body politic, whatever whatever way you you kind of choose to, to hold it. And this poet is called Diane de Prima, who was, a, who was a, obviously was a female poet in that movement. And um, I kind of sought her out because I was thinking to myself, well, I kind of know, I know the male voices of that movement, but, but there must have been women there. And of course there were. So I've been reading Diana de Prima lately and... Um, yeah, much synaptic flood has been occurring. <laughs> Very good. Uh, we should also mention that Gregory has got a new collection out. It's called Balanouve. It's described here as a sequence of poems about a mythical city charting its decline to its resurrection. Uh, and it's published by Broken Sleep. It's just come out, I believe. So, um, again, we'll, we'll put a link in the notes to that and you can, you can follow that through. And I'd just like to add that if you ever get the chance to be in a, a workshop or a talk or a seminar or to hear Gregory read, I would really encourage you to go. Uh, the first time I met him was in a workshop that he led at the wonderful Much Wenlock Poetry Festival when that was around some about a decade ago. Uh, and he, he led a fantastic thing in, a, in, in the grounds of a priory out in the open air so it was really uh wonderful so he's a yeah it's just a great a great source of knowledge and uh, a, a synaptic flood causer in his own way so yeah i think i think it's a treat i think that's probably about all we've got time for this month we'll be back with you next month with more poems as friends until then thank you for listening <laughs>